Well, week one of having the children with us certainly brought some extra energy into the room, didn't it? I think that's a good thing. I don't think I'm going to jump around this morning, though, if that's okay. Well, as I shared during prayer time this morning, I am very excited that we get to go on this journey together over the next eight weeks. We're starting a new series called Identity Crisis, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a series that's been on my heart really as long as I've been a pastor, because as a pastor, one of the things that I've gotten to, the joy of talking to people about more than just about anything And one of the things that I've had to come to the place where I've had to learn a lot about it is this idea of one question. Who am I? And we often look at that in all sorts of different ways. Like you've seen these stickers. In fact, most of you may have already received one. You're going to get one of these every week during during this series. And each week what you might write on it might change as we learn and we grow together. Now, obviously, we all have names. But when it comes to the question of who we are, we often tend to label ourselves in all sorts of different ways. What's really interesting is the amount of time and money that our secular world puts on the question of who am I? What do I mean? Well, think about it. What are a myriad of movies about today? Identity. Always have been. What do I mean? Have you ever heard of Cinderella? She was trying to figure out who she was. Was she just a lowly stepdaughter or was she a princess? What about Aladdin? Same question. Was he just a beggar and a poor kid or could his life amount to something more? Well, maybe you like slightly more grown-up movies. I'm a big fan of hero and action movies. Have you ever seen The Bourne Identity Supremacy and the other one that I can't remember the name of? I like him. But what is Jason Bourne's whole point? Trying to figure out who he was and what he was made to do and whether or not he wanted to be known by his actions as a killer. Or other movies like Memento, where a man also has amnesia and spends the whole movie trying to figure out his past and then gets to the end of the movie and we're shocked at what is, how his past has unfolded. Or read stories of politicians that say one thing to this person and another thing to this person because they try so hard, as many of us do, to keep everybody happy. And when you seek to keep everybody happy, who's happy? No one. Identity crises, identity formation is all around us. And one of the biggest struggles for us as followers of Jesus Christ is under understanding who we are and actually living it out and believing it. And so we're going to start at the beginning this week. We're going to start very simply with the question of who are we? Hello, my name is Michael Richard Rose. I'm 35 years old. I was born in Morgantown, West Virginia to Rick and Berlene Rose. I have lived in more states and countries than I can count, and I have lived in Hong Kong for the past eight years where I've served as your pastor of various titles. It is a privilege to be with you today, but not a single one of those things helped you get to know me much better because they tell about me. They don't actually tell who I am. If we want to figure out who we are, we've got to go back 
all the way to the beginnings of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And we're going to move around a bit this morning and each uh, week that we follow. But in creation, in the, the account of creation, first we have, as I heard about all weekend at the Ravi Zacharias conference, in the beginning, God. Okay? That's critical. That's paramount. This all started with God, not with you or me. Okay, get that first. This is about him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that included everything in it. Okay? Then we move on, and in verses 26 and 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Wow. That is a loaded two-verse summary of our creation. When we think about our identity, Mark Driscoll tells us that what we're asking is how we see ourselves. How do you see yourself? Who do you see when you look in the mirror? The Oxford Dictionary, if you want a more intellectual approach, says it's the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. That's your identity. But as we look at this verse, as we look at these two verses, we see a pretty amazing progression. First, God says. Now, different people feel different ways about whom God is talking to here. Some believe he's talking to the angels. I'm not convinced that that's the case. They might have been listening in. But it sounds to me more like this is the Trinity at work. Because when he says, let us make man in our image, to me this gives us a picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at work together in creation. And when you go to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, in the beginning was the Word, it leads me to think awfully much that this is God in relationship with himself, which is hard for my little brain to comprehend, because I think very singularly, I think what's called a linear I think in straight lines. We, we all tend to because we need things to have a beginning and the end. And so how can one God have three persons? Because he's God. If we could understand everything about him, how much of a God would he really be? But this isn't just a sermon on the Trinity. There's a relational context here to how God created man. It started in his creation of man in relationship. In our likeness. Invited into a community. And let them then rule. Let them take care of. Look after. Oversee. Rule over. The fish of the sea. The birds of the air. The livestock. Over all the earth. They, man, was to be stewards. We are to take care of and oversee and look after and rule over this world that God has charged us with taking care of. That's our job. And so God created man in his own image. So if you go to the logical conclusion, it means that man, humanity, has always been an image bearer of God. If we looked in the mirror and asked ourselves the question, do I see God in me? What would the answer be? Sometimes it might be, yeah, I've had a good day. And other times it might be... Not sure I've looked very much like God today. 
We are made to reflect God. Unfortunately, before we do that, just as I told the kids this morning, for you created my inmost being. God, our creator, knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I love that he says fearfully and wonderfully made. God put significant detail and attention into how he made you. Do you realize that? It wasn't an accident that I was made to be five foot eight inches tall. I like to say it's actually like five, seven and three quarters. And I don't know what that is in centimeters. I'm sorry. And I'm also made to have ginger hair slightly. And I'm also made to look this certain way. Blue eyes, kind of skinny uh, and all these features about me. This is how God made me to be, to look. He put great attention into each of us. We were fearfully and wonderfully made. God didn't look at me and go, it's not a fear thing. Ah, what did I just do? It's that God took joy in his creation. But if I were to ask you to tell me about yourself, a lot of things happen in these conversations. A lot of times you tell me what you do, and we're going to get to things that identify us later on. And then you go on to tell me all the things you don't do. Or all the ways you're not like you'd like to be. Or, oh, I wish I was thinner. I wish I was taller. I wish this. I need this. I want that. Yada, yada, yada. These things all mark us. Yet I wonder in those moments, do we look here at Psalm 139 and say, I have been made fearfully and wonderfully by my God and my King. And I bear His likeness. I was made in the image of God. I don't think we go through life thinking that very often. Maybe that's just me. There's a reason we get distracted from our bearing the image of God. And that came later on. I'm sorry, it should be Genesis 3, uh, 4. But the serpent, this is the, what's the, the passage is called the fall of man. The introduction of sin into the world began with an identity crisis. Have you ever noticed that? The serpent said to the woman, said to Eve, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. But wait a minute. All the way back in Genesis 1, whose image were we made in? God. So aren't they already like God? Uh Uh-oh. We have a bit of an identity crisis. The evil one, the deceiver, Satan says, your eyes aren't yet opened. You don't know all there is to know. There's more to this life. If you just disobey, if you just take a bite and seek something beyond what God offers. The temptation there was made starting with identity. You're not yet like God, but you can be with this knowledge. He made us with our eyes already open. You realize that Adam and Eve, before the fall, got to walk hand in hand, walking with God. Talking with Him face to face. Enjoying His presence all the time. But one little lie of Satan says, you're not like Him. Made them suffer and fall. And for the rest of humanity, we have been dying. 
because we continue to choose man's ways, man's choices over God. Neil Anderson says it like this. He says, in essence, when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost a true knowledge of God. In God's original design, knowledge was relational. You remember the old song, oh, he walks with me, he talks with me, and he'll lead me on my way. Adam and Eve knew that full well. They were walking and talking with God. And when they realized they'd sinned, what did they do? They hid from God. If you have children, what do your kids do when they think they're going to get in trouble? They run and hide. Now, the good thing is, usually they're not very good at hiding, and we find them, and we deal with those issues. But the Hebrew concept of knowledge implied more than just knowing stuff. All weekend, I've been listening to professors from all over the world speak and teach on things which I try to grasp, and I I enjoyed very much. But the cool thing was, in just about every lecture I heard throughout the weekend, they said, we don't want you just to take a lot of information in. This information is only as valuable as it is in the context of relationships with others. And it always starts. Our identity always starts. Knowledge is only as good as it affects relationships, first with God and then with one another. You can know lots of stuff. You can know much about the Word of God. But some of the best biblical scholars in the world that know a lot about the Bible have no interest in God. Lots of people know stuff about God. But knowing, as the old TV show said, is only half the battle. Enjoying relationship with God, whom we were made to be. We were made in his image. We were not made to be gods. We were made to reflect him in every area of our lives. But Satan found a way to tempt us. Found a way to introduce us to a question of our identity. And what did the people do? Started with Adam and Eve, and we've been doing it ever since. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. You might be tempted here to say, wait, Mike, come on. I don't go around worshipping created things. I worship God. You know, I showed up in church this morning, and I am very glad you're here this morning. And I will tell you that in person when we're done. But if we looked at our lives... I suspect that many of us might find that a lot of things take our time, our attention, our devotion instead of our Lord. You know, the verse before in Romans 1, Paul is talking very much, and this is what he says right before that. Sorry. In Romans 1.24, 22 really, he said, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, that's hugely significant for anyone that would have been reading this in the time that would have had any knowledge of the Ten Commandments, because what is the first commandment? No one has any confidence to tell me the first commandment. You've been hearing it all weekend. Any of my staff has been listening to it for the past three days. So come on, one of you. 
Thank you. You shall have no other gods before me. The very first commandment God gave to the people said, you shall have no other God before me. And Paul here, as he writes to the church in Rome, to the Jews in Rome, he says, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for their own man-made images. And then therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Did you see the progression there? They got caught up thinking they would make their own gods. They would follow their own attention. And it even led to sexual impurity. And God allowed that to happen. One of the amazing things of free will is he lets us dig our own holes. He allows us to choose. We are not robots. God and his amazing Godness allows us to make our own decisions but knows how we will react and respond. He loves us so much that he allows us to make choices. And sometimes those choices mean that we don't worship him, we don't follow him. Basically, humanity can be divided into two categories, if you think about it. So Paul's saying, you've got those that worship the creator and those that worship the created things. Those that make idol, idols out of the things here on earth. We do that with our identities. We do that trying to make ourselves into who we think we're supposed to be. We do that trying to give ourselves an image and an identity that makes us fit in in this world that God has already made. We try to be someone we're not because we think we're supposed to be this way. And identity, idolatry, takes some basic forms. And you might not say, Mike, I don't have any idols in my house. When I came to know Jesus Christ, I put away the Buddhist shrine. Uh, I gave away any idols I had in my house. Praise the Lord. I'm very happy to hear that. But Mark Driscoll came up with a little acronym that I was really impressed with. And I'm going to share that with you this morning. He looks at some ways we have idols in our lives today. First, items. If you look at identity idolatry, sometimes we define ourselves or others by their stuff. Case in point, how many of you are Android people? Yeah, see, look at that. Their hands and they're all like, woohoo, yeah, look at me. Now, how many of you have seen the light and are iOS people, Apple people? There we go, a few different hands. Some going back to it, I see. See, we we define ourselves by our stuff. What about, what shoes did you wear? You know, or what did you dress like? Or what does your flat look like? Or where is your flat? You know, because if you live at the peak, whoa. If you live in Tin Shui Wai, ooh. See? That's how it starts. We define our identity by items. And we begin to place those over God. Be very careful of doing that. Because the things of the earth are passing away. This doesn't matter. This life that God has given us matters. These speakers, this screen, my iPad, that's inconsequential. That's not what this is about. So yeah, idols can be stuff. 
good things can become an idol. Don't forget that. Well, then there's this idea of duties. I love one of the great pictures of Jesus when he goes to visit Mary and Martha. Martha learned this lesson the hard way by having to see her sister blessed by Jesus for simply sitting and enjoying his presence. But if I look around this room, I can guess what's going through your minds right now. Some of you are thinking, what am I going to have for lunch today? Some of you are thinking, will he finish anytime soon? Others of you are thinking, the house is a mess and we've got people coming over this evening. How will I get it clean in time? Some of you others are thinking, I have all this homework to do and how am I going to get to it? And work is tomorrow and I've got all these things to do and why can't there be enough time? And others of you thinking, will my kids just listen to me? All of these duties, all of these responsibilities begin to get us saying something that is hugely dangerous in our lives. I can't spend time with God right now. However you say it, we often say it in our actions. I'm so busy because the house is a mess. The flat, I call them houses, I'm an American. The flat is a mess. Or I don't have time, God, right now. Work is, is piling up. I've got to get this done. Do you? Or will it be there tomorrow? If you've been through 2-7, you've read one of my favorite articles, The Tyranny of the Urgent. There is the urgent, and there is the importance. The importance starts right here. In a relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. But we think that our duties, that our responsibilities define us. And somehow we get caught thinking that if I don't do all these things, all these things, then I'm not good enough. And therefore, we push God to the side because we've got stuff to do. Why do you think Hong Kong prides itself on answering this question this way? How are you? I'm busy. We have made an idol out of doing stuff. And we have placed more importance there than in being able to practice what I call the ministry of presence. Sitting at the feet of God and saying, you are more important. And the relationships around are more important than getting this done. Now, I confess... I struggle with this. I am a task-oriented person. I show a video to every premarital couple I talk to called It's Not About the Nail. I don't know if you've ever seen this video. Justin and Rizella have. And there's this video talking of a woman sharing a story and sharing her problems. And the whole time she's got a nail stuck in her forehead. And all the husband wants to do is fix the nail. And the woman is sharing from her heart how it's making her feel and all these things. And the husband wants to fix the nail. We can get like that. Our duties trump relationship. We get so caught up fixing everything, succeeding, that we miss the relationship that is right in front of us. Then, then we can make idols of each other. Parents, your kids are not the most important thing in this world. Kids, your mom and dad, your boyfriend, your friends are not the most important things in this world. A piece of advice was given when I was in youth ministry and, and um, 
my lovely wife was counseling a woman in our youth group in America who was having problems with her parents. And it was one of those situations where both were in the church and, and we knew everybody well and we knew more of the situation than either side thought we did. And, and she looked at it, this young girl, and I'll never forget, she said two things. She said, I'll call her Sam. Sam, your parents' first priority isn't you. Their first priority as to the Lord is yours. And then she went on to say they should love each other and in that love, love you. Can you allow them to do that? Because she was mad that she felt that they didn't like her for who she was. We sometimes put so much emphasis on the success of our children. We put so much emphasis on the success of our relationships. We put so much emphasis on how our friends are doing or am I as successful as my friend that I went to school with? Have I done as good of a job as this person? We begin to fall into the trap of comparison, right? I guarantee that everyone in this room has compared themselves to someone at some point in time. It happens to all of us. But the minute we begin falling into the trap of comparison, what has happened? We have said, I am not an image bearer of God. I just have to be like, if I want to be like Sydney, I just have to be more like Sydney, which would be a great thing. I love Sydney. But we begin to place Sydney as the idol more than following the Lord Jesus Christ. And the minute we fall into the trap of comparison, we cease to say, God, make me who you want me to be, and instead say, God, make me more like them. And that's very dangerous. Because we're each fearfully and wonderfully made. And if we're busy trying to be like everybody else, who's going to be us? And then our security, we realize, isn't in the Lord. Isn't on Christ the solid rock I stand. It becomes on Sydney the solid rock, but wavers sometimes I kind of stand. Because my significance is wrapped up in how I get along with him. We allow our significance to be dictated by what others think of us or how we do in raising our children or taking care of others or being important in the eyes of the world. Has anyone ever done that before? Why do kids go to school at two years old in Hong Kong? Because we want them to be better than we were, right? We're going to give our kids everything we didn't have. And that's not all bad. But when our children, when our circumstances, when our items become more important than God, we've missed it. We have made idols out of them. And there's those longings. This is a tough one because we don't like to think about it. But in our quest, sometimes we feel like there's got to be more to life or I wish I was doing something different. And we begin looking forward all the time. Right? We begin to think, if only this happened, then everything would be okay. Or a year from now, things will be way better, right? Or if this happens, if A, B, C, and D happen, you know what? Then I'll be happy, and then I'll give my life to the Lord. If the future pans out the way I tell God to make it happen, this is what we're really saying, then everything will be all right, and then I'll be able to trust Him more. But where's the faith in that? We tend to always look so far ahead that we can't stop and sit down and live the now that God has placed us in. 
And what happens when we begin to look forward to our longings and place more emphasis on those than on the Lord himself? When we miss out in this world in who we've been created to be. What that does is we're so focused on the future that we can't stop and catch people that are talking to us right now. I was in college once, and I had a million things going on one day. And I'll never forget, my friend Bethany looked at me and she said, you are always so distracted. Why don't you just talk to us? And I said, oh, sorry. But that's true for a lot of us. We're always thinking about what comes next. If I have a conversation with you after church today, one of us is probably thinking, when is this going to end? Because I've got to go do this, this, and this, and this, right? We often do that. We're always moving on to the next thing. What does that do to people? Well, it tells them we love whatever's later on more than we love them. What does it tell to the Lord? It says we can't love others the way he's called us to, and we can't live knowing that we are secure in the moment he has placed us in. And we might miss out on an opportunity to serve someone in love and be used by God to change a life. What happens when they get that phone call that somebody says, I need help, and I need to talk to you now? And you respond with, I'm too busy. Can't do it. We're too busy living in the future that we can't be present with people now. Another way sometimes we define ourselves is through our sufferings. Through all the pain we have endured. Through all the struggles we have lived through. Through all the things that are coming our way. And we allow our sufferings to define us. Now I want to make a promise to you. You will suffer. A couple of reasons I know this to be true. One, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin equals death. We will suffer. And then, as we seek to follow Christ, we're further told that the world won't understand you because they don't understand love in the way God created love to be. And so the more we become like him, the less the world's going to understand. And when they don't understand something, what do they usually do? They attack it. And so we are promised throughout the scriptures that there are times when we will suffer. But there are times in our lives when the suffering should be used to point us back to God. Always should be. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has seized you except what is common to man and God is faithful. He'll never give you more than you can handle. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. He never gives us too much. But he does allow suffering. He even allows us to make our own mistakes and deal with the consequences of them. But in that suffering, we have two choices again. We either make an idol out of poor me syndrome. Now, there is real suffering. We have some people in our church dealing with cancer. That is suffering that I don't even fully understand. But you know what's amazing about one man I talked to that's living through the pain of cancer is he says, I just want to be with Jesus. I just want to enjoy him. He gets it. But often... We define ourselves by what we've done, by the pain we've either endured or the pain we've caused other people. We let our mistakes define us. We let our sicknesses define us. We let our weaknesses and our failings define us. And we have made idols out of the very things we wish weren't true about us because they begin to define us. The Apostle Paul was able to say that I count it pure joy to face trials and temptations of any kind. He was chained to walls. He was imprisoned. He was bitten by a snake. He was stoned and not drunk stoned, stones thrown at him. 
And through all those things, he pointed back to the Lord. That's suffering with purpose. That's what we're invited to enjoy. He could even say, I enjoy suffering. He didn't enjoy the circumstances. No. He loved God so much that this was all momentary. In light of the future glory we will enjoy with our God and our King. Our sicknesses, our suffering, our mistakes, and our past do not define us. The Lord does, and He made us in His own image. That is awesome. But what happens is when sin creeps in, when we begin to make idols out of these things, we miss it. We miss the relationship. If you've never read Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, I highly recommend it. It is an excellent book. And he talks about this very intellectually, and so I'll I'll read it slowly. He says, Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Okay? Sin is the refusal to find our identities in God. At the very heart of sin comes pride, right? We know better than God. We will choose to not follow God and be dictated by our heart's desire rather than His. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from God. That's exactly what Eve did, and Adam followed. We don't need you, God. We've got this covered. Most people think of sin primarily as breaking divine rules. But Kierkegaard knows that the very first of the Ten Commandments is to have no other gods before me. So according to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just doing bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship to God. I want to read that last sentence again. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, your purpose, and happiness than your relationship to God. It doesn't just say it's the bad things. He reminds us so well that when we place our happiness at the success of our children, when we place our happiness in whether we have the newest toy, the fanciest clothes, or the most responsibility at work, or what others think about us, or the future, or we mark our identity by poor me, or I have suffered much, I deserve this. We have made gods out of the very things that were good and could have taught us so much and pointed us back to himself. We try to be our own gods. But it doesn't stop there. That's not the end of the story. So maybe we have worshipped at the feet of identity idols. But, for just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You see, our lives should mark our very worship of God. Remember last week we talked about this idea of becoming a people of worship. Well, this starts with knowing who we are in Christ, knowing who God has made us to be. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am. Everything in my life is worship. Did you know that? You think about it like that? 
Everything we do, all that pours out of us, all that flows out of our mouth, all that comes out of our actions, all of that is worship. All that I do and all that I can ever become in light of the chosen, of a chosen or choosing God. This is Harold Best saying this. He puts it so well. We're worshiping all the time. The question becomes, who or what are we worshiping? If our identity is built in the person of Jesus Christ, Our lives are worshiping Him. And everything that comes out of them is an action that begins with the question, will this honor Him? Is my identity so wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ that everything that pours out of me is out of devotion and love for Him? Because why wouldn't I? He is God. My iPad, my phone, my stuff, my kids, my awesome wife are not God. He is. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not only were we created in his image, but through Jesus Christ, we were invited to be his children. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Do you believe that? That if you've believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Your identity is God's child. Really? Nobody gets excited about that? Come on, people. This is amazing stuff. This is why churches are struggling today. Because we sit there and we think about it, but we don't understand and live it. This should transform every interaction in our life. Because as God's children, we then can't help but give everything we have back to Him. Because He made us, He created us to be exactly who we are. And our security isn't in ourselves. We've been accepted by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. We've been adopted into the family. Next week, we're going to look at that idea of acceptance. But this week, if you've got your name tag ready, I think you should. Do you have your name tags? Were they passed out? No, they didn't get passed out. Okay, no problem. When you go to the back during tea time, I would like you to grab one of the fancy schmancy name tags. And on it, When it says, hello, my name is, you get to write, if you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my name is a child of God. When we think about our identity, I don't want you to tell me what you do. I don't want you to tell me about your family. I want to hear all about that stuff. But your identity starts with the fact that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Our stuff doesn't define us. Our longings don't define us. Suffering does not define us. Other people do not define us. Our relationship with our King, who's adopted us and sons and daughters, He defines us. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is simple today. May our identity be wrapped in You. May it not be about myself, about how good I think I am, 
But may all I do and say bring glory to your name. Amen.